You are listening to an MLGA Network podcast. Welcome to Voluntary Vixens, where Jesse and Maddie give a female voice to news and pop culture with a libertarian twist. Join us to stay informed and challenged while keeping it sane, peaceful, and most importantly, voluntary. Hello, Vixens. We are once again joined by a guest where Maddie has actually met this person in real life, and I still have not met Jesse in real life. <laughs> so um, adding to this, this in particular Hall of Fame, uh, tonight we are joined by well-known Austrian economist and just overall, I think, good person, uh, Bob Murphy. Thanks for having me. Glad to be here. Yeah, absolutely. And, um, you know, Jesse and I have been following you for a long time and we've, you know, wanted to have you on our show for a while. But I think, you know, this was, again, we can go a bunch of different ways with you because I think Bob, if you listen to Bob's show, the Bob Murphy show, um, you are not afraid of covering a wide array of topics. And, um, I think like one really great example of that is the fact that you and your co-author Doug McGuff, um, Mm -hmm. an actual MD, teamed up together a couple years ago to put out the Primal Prescription, which was a deep dive into the what, what we would all kind of know and consider to be a lot of the failings of the medical system once government and overregulation kind of came in. Um, so I guess that being said, you know, as an economist, um, has anybody ever told you like, you know, stay in your lane? You're not, you're not a doctor. I mean, that may have even come up this year because of the whole COVID crisis. Right. So, uh, yes, I mean, you're right that in 2020, uh, certainly, I, I even just like a few weeks ago on Twitter, I, yeah, I got people <laughs> talking to me in no uncertain terms along those lines for, you know, daring to mention something. Um, that one, it was something like, and people misunderstood what I, my point was. I was just, I was saying that, look, look if it, if you had, and I'm not like anti-vax as a general thing, right? I was just trying to clarify yeah. the debate. And I was just saying, look at, uh, it's a bit ironic because, you know, if the vaccine were perfectly effective and there were no side effects whatsoever and it was safe for anybody to take, then it would just be a personal decision, you know, assuming it wasn't super expensive. And that would be Mm -hmm. that. And other people's decisions wouldn't affect you at all. So if there's somebody saying, hey, I don't want to stick this needle in my arm because I'm not, you know, it might be dangerous. What the other side is saying to them is, no, 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 because there's some people that can't take this because it would be dangerous for them. So that's why you should go ahead and do it, you selfish jerk. And that's just, you know, it's a weird thing. Like it's... You know, it's not that it's safe or unsafe. Like even the CDC lists people that shouldn't be taking standard vaccinations, you know, like for kids going to school and whatever, like there's Mm -hmm. certain groups that can. So anyway, I just made a a minor point like that just to say it's funny how this this argument goes, that it's it's not whether it's safe or not. It's that there's disagreeing over which groups it's safe for. And, you know, and uh, and yeah, people were, as you say, telling me I want people to die and stuff like that just for pointing that out. And oh, are you are you a doctor now? That kind of stuff. (laughs) (laughs) <laughs> um, yeah, but but yeah, I, but to answer your, I I didn't actually get that kind of pushback too much. I mean, it just got some. A few people were just because Mark Sisson was the um, 
you know, the, the publisher of the, you know, it was, it was his outfit that published it. He had initially approached me and then he had his, his friend, Doug McGuff, the ER doctor also was working on a manuscript. And then Mark Sisson said, Hey, why don't you guys just combine this? Cause it's kind of, you know, a lot of overlap. And it was great that he did. Cause Doug had a lot of stuff that I didn't know. And then me as a, an economist, there were certain things I knew. So it really, I think the book went well, you know, came out well. And some of the people who were like fans of, just, you know, the primal diet and Mark Sisson's overall stuff, they were disappointed when this particular book came out because they were telling him, oh, these right-winger guys bamboozled you, Mark, you know, th- that kind oh, of stuff. Oh, wow. But, oh, I mean, just, I don't, you know, just like in the comments and th- you know what I mean, when like when Mark on his blog announced the new book, I just saw that sort of thing. But but no, generally speaking, people haven't asked me. And I think that's, be- haven't said, hey, you're an economist, you have no business doing this. And I think the reason is, Everybody kind of gets a sense that something's really screwy with healthcare, you know, in terms of especially that it's so expensive, like things are more expensive than they should be. Everybody knows that. And people kind of realize, yeah, economists might have some insight into that particular aspect of what's going on. Um, Mm -hmm. And and so like just to warm people up to it, I say, can you imagine when you went to buy a new car, if you'd go in, the dealer would show you different models and stuff. And then you had to pick the car and it was yours. You legally purchased it and you were responsible for the cost. And then they told you how much it was like yeah. that would be, you know, can you possibly, I mean, and, and people like, I really encourage people just think through that, how screwed up the car market would be, how ridiculously mm-hmm. over expensive things would be. I mean, there would still be some comp, you know, there'd be competition, everything, but it would be on the end of making the cars look better and whatever, you know, it wouldn't be on value pricing because you don't yeah. even know what it's going to be on the front end. And it, it's not that each car could be a billion dollars because people just couldn't afford that. You know what I mean? So there would mm-hmm. be some give and take. And then that's actually kind of what healthcare in the United States is like right now. Yeah. I think, I think, uh, the problem with a lot of people in this country that are, that are kind of pushing for like single payer is they think that healthcare, how we run healthcare is a capitalistic business model but it really isn't. And I think so the reason far from it. Yeah. And I think the reason why that is, and I was talking about this with somebody the other day, is Medicare and Medicaid's involvement into the healthcare system really screwed up how we pay for healthcare and how transparent it all is, really. So I was going to ask, like, do you want to explain to our audience kind of like how Medicare got started? started and how it kind of in my mind i see it as sort of like all insurance companies view or model their their system after medicare and medicaid so it's kind of like the blue standard for how you know a lot of insurance companies will bill and what they what they require of providers right yeah yeah sure just on your first observation you're right that so you know, say what you will about the U.S. healthcare system, but it's not like the Wild West laissez-faire. You know, that's, <laughs> yeah. that's certainly not. Um, I don't know if this statistic is still true, but I know in recent years when I was doing some work with, you know, a Canadian um, free market think tank, that I believe the, the statistic was that the U.S. governments at all levels spent more on Americans' healthcare than the Canadian government at all levels did. Mm-hmm. And and yet the Canadians had this notion that, oh, my gosh, you wouldn't want to go down to the United States because they're the, you know, it's just total capital. And so, you know, that's (laughs) so the private sector spent a bunch more on top of that. And that's why the U.S. spends so much more of its GDP on health care, you know, than anywhere else. But 
So it's it's definitely a screwy system. There's lots of problems, but it's you know it's not that government's just sitting back and doing nothing when it comes to uh, the healthcare sector. Mm -hmm. So um, to answer or your other part of your question, I'll just give a real brief rundown. So okay. I, I think the fundamental problem is you know what's so screwy about this is it's the 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 patient is not really the ultimate customer. That mm -hmm. when you go, it's either the government or third party health insurance company is typically the one who's literally paying the bill. Yeah. So you know, just people should think, you know, you go in, you see the sticker shock, like how much is this going to cost? And, you know, some procedure that you would think, geez, it doesn't seem like they did too much, didn't take money, much time that it's not like I used up a machine for six hours and the bills, you know, 800 bucks. Whoa. And then, oh, insurance adjustment. And that gets knocked down to 400 and then your insurance covers 300 of it and you're on the hook for $89. You're like, oh, that's not too bad. It, and yet you mm -hmm. wonder like, so where did the 800 come from and who's paying what? And and so you can see that you're just a little drop in the bucket in terms of the revenue going to the hospital or, or outpatient clinic, whatever it is. And so that's partly why you also, you don't have much control over it, right? Like if you right. want to get something done, you got to call the insurance company and see if they approve it. And that's why you're going mm -hmm. through all these hoops. And so that's, Kind of, and that's also why the cost explodes, is because, you know, if you since you're going and getting services that you're paying for two percent of, of mm -hmm. course you're going to buy away. We're just like if you would go to a restaurant and order a bunch of food and you were on the hook for whatever ten percent of the final amount, you would go get a lot more steak and caviar and whatnot. You know what I mean? So there's there's that kind of element involved. So the question is, why is that? And so just real brief, just some of the highlights. So, um. During the World War II, there were wage and price controls. Okay, you know the government was printing money like crazy. They were requisitioning mm -hmm. supplies for the war effort. It would have looked bad if prices could rise to reflect how much money they were actually printing. Mm -hmm. And so they made it literally illegal um, for f firms to you know too aggressively raise pr the prices they charged the public, but also how much they paid workers. They were trying to keep you know inflation records. So that's a crazy you know dealing with the symptoms, not the cause, but in any event, that's what they were doing. And so then big companies, in order to attract more talent, you know, they were only legally allowed to offer, you know, to raise wage rates so much per year. So they said, okay, well, what if, you know, we want to hire somebody, we can't give them more money because mm -hmm. it's illegal, but we'll, we'll cover your health insurance. And so that was, that was one way in which, um, it just came to be that, oh, when you go to get, when you get hired by a, a company, especially if it's a big established company, part of what you're getting, they're not just giving you a paycheck. They're also giving you health insurance as part. And so we kind of take that for granted in the United States. But why is that? It's not like if you're yeah. talking to someone and, and they say, hey, you want to come to my house? I say, oh, I can't. Well, why not? Because I can't legally drive. Well, why not? Well, because I'm in between jobs. And so I don't have auto insurance right now. So I got to mm. wait till I get hired again. Then I can get auto insurance and then I can. <laughs> Nobody yeah. talks like that, but yeah. yet it is totally standard to say, oh, I'm waiting on this procedure because I'm in between jobs and right now I don't have health insurance. Yeah. Right. That's normal to talk like that. And so why is it that you're, so I'm, I'm just pointing out that that's one of the reasons that that happened. Mm -hmm. um, another reason is the tax code, just the way it's, and this is still true today, is that if your employer pays you um, $100,000 in salary and then you go and spend $10,000 on health insurance premiums, you're taxed on the full hundred thousand, whereas the employer, you know, they can just say, "Well, what if instead we give you ninety thousand as salary, mm -hmm. and then we pay ten thousand to cover your health insurance premiums?" 
the employer gets to deduct both of those as business expenses. And so that's yeah. a reason that it minimizes the, the joint tax bill between the two parties. If the employer pays your premiums on your behalf, you know, with money that, you know, in their mind is, is due to your productivity, they don't care how they divvy it up, but you as the employee care, because again, if, if you have to just get your paycheck and go buy it, you're getting taxed, you know, on, on the, on the, the front end, at least mm -hmm. the way the tax code currently. So that's another reason that it's, so you can see why this happens, mm. but then again, that's that's the problem because now again, it's you're not in control. It's now oh, if you got a medical thing, then you got to go talk to the HR department if you work for a big company and see hey, can we work with the insurance? So that's partly how this all happened. And then as you say, yeah, this fostered the you know the big group plans and group pricing and stuff like that. And then yeah, it was just further solidified, and that's partly why prices were rising so rapidly in the healthcare sector relative to other sectors where normally you'd expect innovation stuff, things to get cheaper over time and, or the quality improve in healthcare. Yes. Quality in certain things has gone up, but yet the prices have exploded and I'm saying this is part of the reason. And so then yep. Oh gee, older people, they just can't afford this stuff. And so then that's the rationale, you know, for, for Medicare to come in because, Oh, mm -hmm. and, and so it's just sort of problems that government intervention fueled or, or created, um, <laughs> yeah. that, you know, they come in and just keep, oh, we're now we're going to fix it. And they keep, keep blaming on the free market. And yet it just keeps ramping up and, and fostering more and more of the problem. Yeah. Isn't that the broken leg fallacy? Like government broke your leg yep. and then here they are to save the day and, um, help you with that broken leg. Um, I don't think I made the connection before, but before you just laid it out like that, that, but I guess it totally makes sense that, you know, this whole kind of, um, insurance market was basically propped up in a response to funny money coming out being printed by the fed uh, on behalf of the war machine mm -hmm. right yeah it is it is kind of ironic that you know that's the the part of the genesis of, of how it this became such a standard thing and then yeah like i said that so nowadays they don't have wage and price control so you might wonder well why didn't that go away and i think it just kind of it, it got locked in and then yeah. like i said that the tax code also you know, yeah, solidifies that because there, that is such a huge. Um, I, I should mention too this. You know, uh, it might come off like, oh, we're just blaming those Democrats. You know, FDR and, oh. and Lyndon Johnson. <laughs> but there, a huge thing in terms of how screwed up the system is is the MTALA. What does that stand for? Emergency Medical Treatment and Active Labor Act or something yeah. like that. You know, the the thing where if you get dro dropped off at a hospital, they have to treat you. Yes. That sort of thing. Yes. You know, regardless of your insurance stat. That was brought in under the Reagan administration. Mm -hmm. And so, um, you mm -hmm. know, so this, this is a bipartisan thing. Oh, that for was, sure. You know, and in fairness, with all these interventions, it's the, the, the system was screwy. So like, you can understand why people said that because again, with prices are so high and now someone can't afford the, the sticker shock without yeah. health insurance, you can see why, well, gee, if some lady's going into labor and she rolls up to the ER you don't want them saying, well, hang on, do you have Blue Cross? You know what I mean? Like, that seems yeah. crazy. But again, the reason she needs to have insurance is because of the prior way the system was set up. But that's why it's so expensive. Yes. Um, for, you know, so that's a thing. Um, that's a, a problem. So, and I, just last point on that. Ironically, that's, you know, how Mitt Romney always used to take such flack for Romney care, you know, mm -hmm. and, 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 and I think rightfully so. But I went and dug up his actual, um, when he pushed that through and he wrote a, an op-ed, I think it was for the Wall Street Journal at the time, mm -hmm. you know, as the as the governor, um, and he he justified it by saying, "No, this is a conservative plan." You know, what oh, we now God. call Romney Care because right now 
people, you know, free riders, freeloaders just show up at the hospital and get treated and walk out. And, you know, we have they legally the hospitals have to treat them. So by forcing everyone to get health insurance, we're at least, you know, stopping that free freeloading. So you could see where he was, you know, trying yeah. how he was trying to package it to say, given the way the system is right now, actually, it's the responsible thing to do to force everyone to have health insurance, because otherwise people just walk in the hospital and get treated and you get hospitals have to just suck it up. Yeah. Well, and that's the thing. It's like hospitals, like we, they don't really make that much money when you really think about how much they have to pay, how much they hemorrhage every year. Because I know that just having worked in healthcare in different hospitals, uh, first off, like there's these diagnostic related groups or DRGs that they will only pay a certain amount of money for these diag diagnoses. Um, when I was working in in mental health, I remember um, the we had these insurance nurses that would come in on our meetings and talk to our doctors and and tell them that they you know a patient that had just been admitted needed to have a diagnosis within like twelve hours so they could go ahead and ship it off and get you know reimbursed because. You know, if they didn't have a diagnosis within a certain amount of time, then, you know, we didn't have their, um, their, their time in the hospital covered. Mm -hmm. So I remember my, the psychiatrist I was working with was really angry about that because some of these people, I mean, mental, mental illness is not an easy diagnosis. So you have to get to know your patient a little bit. So trying to come up with a diagnosis within 12 hours is not exactly mm -hmm. safe or the best practice. But that's what insurance is. Insurance really does drive healthcare more than even the doctors do. Yeah, so I wasn't familiar with that particular element of what you're saying, but that's certainly yeah lines up with the stuff um, that we did in our book. Uh, just another simple example that I'm sure you're familiar with is is people might know that oh gee I have two different things that I, you know the same doctor I want to go in and just have them knock it out at the same time and say, oh no you got to book a separate appointment for that. You know, do the one thing, and then you go yeah. home, and then you book it. And that's because, you know, the way the billing formula works, they can't charge you twice, you know, for the thing. Whereas if you, you go, get you know, they can bill for the one thing, and then you go mm. and come back for the other thing, and they bill you for that. So, yeah, a lot of the seeming absurdity in the system that I'm sure a lot of cynics would say, oh, yeah, this is what happens when you try to, you know, run medicine like a business. It's like, no, it's not being run like a business. That's that's exactly. the problem. It's being yeah. run by this bureaucratic thing with the government exactly. oversight. <laughs> yeah. And then, yeah, the third-party insurers. Um, and, and again, the reason, you know, from the insurance company's point of view, given the way the system is, they have to put all that bureaucracy in place, you know, yeah. because otherwise people could go and just get all kinds of, you know, get a CAT scan every week and whatever, and go do all <laughs> kinds of stuff and run up to hundreds of, you know, so there have to be limits and they have to approve stuff to, you know, so the things that are annoying, those limits are in there given the way the system is set up. But yes, there is a much better system. And, and you know that because again, you can look at other sectors in the U.S. economy or even other procedures that you might call medical, like cosmetic laser surgery, you know, things that are mm -hmm. elective that way, or, you know, the eye, you know, LASIK eye surgery, things where you're just paying cash that it's not, you know, it's very nice. You know, you go in the waiting room, you're not there for six hours the way you are if you go to the ER or something in some places yep. and it's, you're in and out. It's very courteous. It's, it's run like a business, you know? Right. Yeah. And, and just thinking too, like there's so many things that a hospital can be fined for. Like I, the last time I worked in the hospital, it was like a thousand dollars if if the nurse did not ask a patient within the first 24 hours if they if they wanted a flu shot or a pneumonia shot, what? and it didn't matter if that patient mm -hmm. had just been there, like they just got 
released and came back within a day. Like you had to ask those questions over and mm. over again. You're finding mm. out that you're a lot of repetitive stuff you have to do just to make insurance companies happy. Um, if a patient falls in the hospital or if they develop some kind of infection, that's another fine that, or we eat that cost. And then if they come back within 30 days of being discharged, we eat that second visit basically. So there's a lot of reasons why hospitals are not run like a business, <laughs> mm -hmm. you know, cause we have, and that's part of the problems with the diagnostic related groups is you have like a, let's say a patient comes in cause they have, um, they're, they have gallbladder stones and they need to have uh, an ERCP done. And so then there's only so much money that, the, that they're going to get from insurance companies for that procedure and for that diagnosis. If something, a complication happens or whatever, and they need to stay longer in the hospital because they need more time to recover, then that day may not be fully covered. There may be some days extra that either the patient is responsible for, or if the patient can't pay it, then the hospital just eats it. It's just so many, so many things that, uh, just are not efficient ways to run a business. Yeah, yeah, exactly. And, and again, and that's, it's partly, you know, just to think through, you know, what, what's fundamentally the problem. And I, I think it goes back to, yeah, that the, the, the patient is not really the customer. Yes. The, yeah. You know, it's, it's broken up. And so the patient is almost like this annoying, you know, person that like is, is inconveniencing everybody like, <laughs> oh, gee, you're sick again. You know, I got to deal as opposed to, you know, someone's hungry, shows up at a restaurant. They got to make you happy. Otherwise, you might take your business elsewhere. You know, mm -hmm. in, in this model, though, it's it's really not like that. You know, you, you and like you said, too, that's the irony with all the money that's being spent it's not like doctors and nurses are loaded. I mean, obviously like brain surgeons and stuff, although not as much anymore. Like it used to right. be the case, like, you know, there's the idea that, Oh, a rich doctor. And that's not as, as true as it once was, but yeah, it's uh, obviously, you know, you can see the people working in the ER, they're running haggard. Mm -hmm. They're, you know, they're not living a, a fat luxurious lifestyle because they're, you know, skimming so much off the system. That's, and <laughs> yeah. it, it, it just be, it's showing like <laughs> what ends up is like, there's so many, there's a lot more people in the healthcare infrastructure who are not, you know, making boatloads of money off it, but like they don't technically need to be there. Like just all you think of all the thousands of people in the health insurance companies and the the yeah. you know, entering the electronic medical records and all the support staff, and then the people just in charge of chasing down like all the billing and stuff. You know what yes. I mean? Like someone goes and gets a procedure, and people might decide to pay a little bit on it six months later, two years later. You know, the, all the people involved in just hunting them send it out to third party bill collectors. Yeah. So even though these vast sums are being spent on, you know, healthcare in the United States, it's it's not that there's all these groups getting rich off of it. It's just kind of this this waste. It's really it almost would be better if people were getting rich off it because at least you say, all right, well, at least, you know, someone's yeah. benefiting. And it's almost not like that. Yeah. Most doctors I know are still paying off their their bill, their schooling, their, medical their school late debt. 50s, you know, so <laughs> They're not rich, but, and they're also not in, they're not in control either. Cause right. like you said, I think you've said this before. It's like, you know, you can't go to a doctor and be like, okay, so how much is this surgery going to cost me? Cause the doctor's not going to know, <laughs> right? you right. know, he may, he will know the surgery and what he's got to do, but he's not going to know how much all that's going to cost because that's insurance takes away that transparency. And so the doctor, a lot of times can't, doesn't know the business side of things because they're not involved in that. And on that point, um, 
Yeah. So there was a, I, for the book, you know, I was doing some research and, you know, there was a, a woman who was pregnant and she, she was like a, a local news anchor or something. And she called to like a bunch of the hospitals in her area. I don't remember like six or seven, something like that. And just said, yeah, you know, regular, regular vaginal delivery, blah, blah, blah. No complications. What would that be? Like, I know you can't guarantee that something else won't happen, but just so I have a, and she said none of them would give her even a quote. One place did, and they would just, you know, stressed over and over. This is not like a, a yeah. price quote. You know what I mean? We we cannot guarantee you that this is going to be the. But this, if you want to have an idea, this is a ballpark. And again, like that's <laughs> why is it like that there? And and so part of the reason, um, and, and do, I don't know if you guys know Keith Smith, um, the the founder of um. I, now the name is escaping me. He he has a a, a cash payment uh, medical system going on. Mm -hmm. And, you know, he's a doctor and he's, um, he, what he realized was that it's the insurance companies, what they're doing is like, they'll, they'll say to the hospital, no charge this high sticker price because then it benefits us to be able to negotiate you down yeah. because then when we go to employers and we say, you want to choose us for your group plan, cause look at how much we saved our clients last year. You right. know, we, we adjusted this. So you see that, like, in other words, those numbers really are fake. When you go and look at, oh, my gosh, this procedure originally was 1100 and thank goodness the insurer, you know, got a $600 adjustment. It, that No, that it's not like that really cost 1100 You know what I mean? And so that was just a made-up number because then they can adjust it down and, you know, it's sort of scratching each other's backs. So that's why when I was asking him about that phenomenon, like, why is it that they won't even give you a quote? And he was saying... And I thought it was just, oh, they don't know. And he was saying, well, yeah, the people you're on the phone, you're talking to might not know. But the the reason like the higher up people aren't telling them is because they do want to negotiate it on a per, you know what I mean? Like if they tell one person the number, then that's sort of public knowledge. And so they don't want that to be known because they want to be able to negotiate. So if someone comes in with just cash and like, hey, I want to write you a check, that's one number. If someone comes in with insurance, it's got to be a bigger number so the insurance can knock it down. And yeah. so there's you know all that craziness going on, which is why his outfit was is able to deliver you know quality care at like fifteen percent or ten percent of the local hospitals, just because they don't have to deal with other they just do cash. You know you mm -hmm. you show up, we tell you what the price is, do you want it or not, and they run it like a business. I really right. wish it was more broadly done like that. <laughs> like I want something that simple, you know. Like I've got a a mechanic shop, like a car shop, auto shop at the foot of my hill. Like I'd love to be able to go see a doctor with the same simplicity. Like, you know, here's my keys. I drop them in overnight. I pick up my car the next day. Um, yeah, he, by he the way, it's the, it's the surgery. It's the surgery center of Oklahoma that Keith, Dr. Keith Smith. Oh, okay. found. Sorry. The name. Actually, I think, there. I think I have heard of that. I'm wondering, I know, um, Stephen Molyneux, when he had like a cancer diagnosis, he came and sought treatment in the United States and specifically mm. sought out like um, maybe concierge service is the wrong word, but a service similar to what Dr. Mm. Smith seems to have um, have gotten together. Yeah, great. I think he would. Yeah, I think Dr. Smith would call it a concierge that yeah, yeah. His, his clients, his patients, you know, they pay like a flat fee and then the doctors, yeah. you know, on call or whatever. Yep. Yep. Uh, it's funny that like I've got, um, at the job I have, I've got, you know, super nice benefits. Um, yay. I'm very happy for them, but the kind of doctor and treatment and services that I want falls outside of that insurance coverage. And actually, you know, whether it's 
kind of the fault of my insurance company, but also maybe a response that the doctor has um, has put into place in their practice. So I plan on going seeing like a functional medicine doctor. Um, she was booked out. I think I tried to book in like February. She was booked out until June. If that just wants, goes to show like how popular um, this person and this, these services might be for others, but she's technically concierge. So even though like I'll end up paying out of pocket um, to go see her and get what I want done. But, you know, it's just something uh, I think it goes to show maybe that's my privilege speaking that I'm able to go get what I want um, and others are not that lucky and they're kind of stuck with them, you know, either what they are tied to with their employment or just um, whether they're in the category of Medicare or Medicaid. It's um, just to really, you know, (laughs) reemphasize how little freedom people have. And um, no, it's not at all the case because um, it's a quote unquote free market medical system we have it's absolutely not there's no control uh by the consumer as you would expect it to be the individual the person you know the patient um it's in everybody else's hands it seems and they Mm -hmm. are not at all eager to give it back to us right and just to go along with what you're saying so you know fortunately right now there there is like an outlet that you know people who are fed up with the current system it's still legally allowed that that's you know, true. Doctors and whatnot can just say, okay, we, you, we can all step outside this. You want to write me a check, you know, I'll, we'll do whatever. I mean, the person has to be licensed and what, you know, I mean, so it's still technically yeah. there's pl- plenty of prohibitions or restrictions on the transactions that are legal, but you get what I'm saying. Whereas like in, in Canada, that's, that's literally illegal and plenty of, plenty of other places too. And, you know, if they move towards a Medicare for all system or whatnot, you know, if it, if it turns out like you could easily see, if it turns, oh wait a minute, rich people are able to buy, you know, a, to- a totally different type of healthcare, and everybody else is a second-class citizen. That shouldn't be allowed. So, yeah. you know, I think they are because, like with Obama, I don't know if you want to get into like Obamacare and stuff like that, but as, as screwed up as the system was as of 2007 yeah. with Obamacare, they're certainly now making it. it this, I don't see how it can last. Like, like that the health, the private healthcare system, the way it is, yeah. Um, just with you know the mandates and and so forth that it's. It's sort of like you have to charge everyone the same amount and then you have to cover everyone with pre-existing conditions. Yeah. That can't, you know, and, but, but then if, if people are, aren't forced into it, um, the, you know, that system isn't, you know, it can't work. And then over time people just get upset with it and they blame it on capitalism. And then it's <laughs> going to just you know, fuel the calls for single payer, you know, Medicare for all, which is crazy because Medicare is in the whole like 30, depending on how you do the accounting, like $30 trillion or something. And so it's like, oh, why wouldn't we just extend this to the whole population? Because it's worked out so well so far. Clearly. But I mean, like, once you start getting numbers that high, those numbers don't exist. They're not real. And I mean, even to somebody like me who might be somewhat more economically literate than really um, your average person my age, my peers, who didn't study economics in school and honestly took one class of it and kind of... um, I think I wung it and got through it just because I think the guy was at least pretty sensible and it was basic, seemingly basic principles. And, you know, mm-hmm. I think um, economics as a as a subject, uh, I've interpreted it and seen it as a thing that um, people try to make it more complicated than it actually is um, to, you know, scare us away from being more educated on it and being able to um, actually see what's kind of going on. I think that's all probably purposeful. But, um, that, I mean, that's, if you don't, yeah, if we dwell on it, because it's, 
I have when I would give talks for the Mises Institute, you know, on what the Fed's doing or whatever, just anything. A lot of times, yeah, people would come up after and say, "Wow, I really enjoyed your lecture. I was surprised because I hated economics in school." Yeah, and and I totally <laughs> get that because even I, as a professor, when I was teaching at a school, like sometimes I would be almost embarrassed to tell the kids, "I'm sorry, we got to do this," and I would start, you know, I had I would bring in colored chalk and draw different <laughs> cost curves, and and I'd have yeah. to say. Now, this isn't actually how any business really does things, but, yeah. you know, suppose it did, and you know, and it, you know, for the kids that were like the new calculus or whatever, it was kind of a neat little thing. And, but I, I realized after the first test that some of the, because they were really basic questions and the kids were getting them wrong because they were drawing the curves and then getting mixed up. And I realized it's not merely that I'm not teaching them economics, I'm making them learn no less. You know what I mean? Like, in other words, just common sense, they would have gotten some of the questions at the beginning of the semester. But because I was teaching them this stuff that was a little bit weird, you know, they ended up getting mixed up in the model and then putting the wrong answer on the thing when it was like, no, just use your common sense. So, yes, there is something weird about that. And I, I certainly agree with you, Maddie, that the way they used to talk about the central bank, like they wanted that to be very boring because they didn't want people to realize, wait a minute, the Federal Reserve just creates money electronically and buys government debt. Like that's if you really know what they're doing, that's scandalous, and so that's why open market operations and you know like the you know <laughs> Bueller Bueller anybody that kind of stuff, yeah that, you know that really it was very boring until like the financial crisis and then Ben Bernanke having to go on sixty minutes and Ron Paul's campaigns you know mm. people didn't really even talk about the Fed before yeah. all that stuff. Do you think that? You know, one of the things I think that economists are good at is looking at numbers and, and, and being able to draw conclusions on and trends and things. And I'm just, you know, we were talking earlier about how COVID, you know, a lot of a lot of economists have kind of looked at the numbers. Um, our economy minded people were looking at these numbers for COVID and they're drawing certain conclusions or seeing certain trends, but they're getting criticized because they don't have like that medical degree um, or that science degree. But I'm just curious, like, I guess where I was going with that is like, you know, have you been kind of putting together, like, especially with COVID and just uh, maybe all the stuff that's been going on surround, around the COVID, have you noticed like certain trends that um, you see that's maybe is going to change healthcare or how healthcare is going to be done from here on out? Um. Well, well, if I could just speak to the the first part about you know, oh, it, why would economists have anything to say about this stuff? This mm -hmm. is a you know a public health issue, mm -hmm. and and that yes. I think is a, is a the critics who bring that stuff up they're they're missing something pretty basic. It's that you know it'd be one thing it, I'm trying to put it if the question were hey I want to you know use a certain type of you know I want to wash my hands how long should I wash them for should it be ten seconds should it be thirty seconds should it be six hours. <laughs> there you could see how, to, oh, just ask like a doctor. Like that's the kind of thing a doctor, you know, particularly if he has expertise in that particular, you know, the thing you're worried about. But when it comes to, does it make sense to lock down the economy and keep people home and for, keep them from going to work and not, yeah. and kids not going to school for a year because of the spread of this disease? I mean, there, it, that can't just merely be a medical decision because that has all sorts of ramifications. Right. The, you know, the average epidemiologist doesn't mm -hmm. understand well, like things like they even there, they knew, oh, essential workers have to go to work. You know what I mean? Because, I mean, everybody mm -hmm. knew that, oh, if you literally said no one can go to work for a year, we'd all be dead. 
Yeah. Right. And that <laughs> no, no matter how bad COVID-19 is, that they killing everyone doesn't make sense. You know what I mean? Yeah. yeah. So That's even the there, they started making it. And so you can see, oh, it's a matter of trade-offs and it's this and that. And that's so. Um, and I, I did see a good one with um, there was with the issue of, oh, if you're going to travel like certain states saying if you're going to travel out of state, like for like last Thanksgiving, for example, and then you come back and you got to quarantine for two weeks. Mm-hmm. And then I saw one public health official that was thinking on the margin. I like just to give you an example of the kind of thinking I mean, and said, you know, I think that's too much because really, if you just quarantine for a week, then you're probably, you know, that's probably going to do the bulk of, you know, in other words, doing 14 days instead of 17, seven days, you're not really somebody who would have been fine after seven by staying in another seven days. You're not really containing the spread too much. Yeah. And if you make it too onerous, then people just aren't going to do it at all. Yeah. No, that's you know, so really that kind point. of insight, like that's the kind of thing that economists do. Like they say there can be rules, but the un- unintended consequences. And so what do people actually do? So that sort of thing is the bread mm-hmm. and butter of economists and why them looking at it. So it's not really just knowing, oh, how do you balance GDP growth against public health issues? But th- things like that to realize the way the rules are formulated might lead to, you know, there, there might be a better way to do it. So ultimately my... My take on all that was just have it be voluntary. You know, don't have the government do anything if if it really makes sense, if, you know, mask policies at stores make sense, or maybe in some, last thing I'll say on this one, to give an example of what I mean, that, um, you know, so I, in my household, we had someone very vulnerable with a lung condition. And so, you know, we were masking, we had N95 masks on when the government was telling us not to. Yeah. yeah. Right? Like, so that's how, but, and- so we, if there were, if it were, you know, free and the, and stores could have their own policies, then in our area, you know, maybe one store would have a mask policy. And so the people who thought masks were stupid or who were like, you know what, I'm 25, I'm in good shape, I'm not worried about that, they wouldn't go to that store. They'd go to the other store with no policy. And then the people, the elderly or with conditions would, you know, go to the mask store. Where it is now, though, with one size or what it was, you know, when they had all the restrictions we were shopping and every store had a mask policy because the government made them. But people in the aisle, you know, they would have the masks like this or, you, you know what I'm saying? Like it, yeah. you were mingling with people who thought it was stupid. And yeah. so it, it, I'm saying it was the worst of both worlds. Whereas like even us who were taking it very seriously would have, pre- I would have preferred that it was voluntary and the government wasn't forcing policies because then we could have, we only would have been shopping with people who, who were worried like we were. Yeah. You know what I mean? Whereas now the government's forcing everybody in the same boat because it's a one size fits all. So that's just one example of what I mean that even if you thought, oh, this is a serious thing, there should be policies to try to contain the spread, it doesn't follow the government just coming in and mandating it yeah. is, is the best way to do it. And messing everything up. <laughs> yeah. Like, you know, I think we would have done a lot better. Um, we were talking last episode we recorded, it's not out yet, with um a, a woman who is a researcher up at the University of Toronto. And um, I mm. actually met her at like a Mises conference in Toronto. And um, so we were kind of talking about spontaneous order. And um, just, you know, we're all firm believers in that. And we, I think we've seen it play out. I think you as an economist kind of are able to show that with numbers and like the the basic like calculations of what human action is like what people do, how people respond to incentives, how people respond to crisis, how people respond to scarce resources. Like there's all, it's all stuff that can be followed, measured, traced. And so, you know, every single choice that a person makes is something that can be followed. It's behavior. And like you just said, and I think um, that was a really good example. You know, if, um, if it were all voluntary and it was up for, 
you know, um, the individual businesses to make their own decisions, there would have been a range, a spectrum, and like, and everybody's response to it would have been on the on some sort of spectrum as well. And you know, I think um, I can't remember who I was listening to recently, but they made a good point too that you know maybe if um, if it wasn't so top down, one size fits all. It would have been, you know, okay, well, like if you're more comfortable shopping in a mask, like we uh, invite you to come in like earlier hours and there'll mm-hmm. just be less people. And then, yeah. you know, right. if you're a little bit less concerned, um, you're healthier in a healthier, lower risk category, you know, come in later. And that's the, and we'll have equal staff that matches because, you know, we're mm-hmm. all, all making all kinds of choices on our own. Um, but and the other, the benefit too of that, of just competition is then you could see you, there would be more like experiments as it were to yeah. see which policies, which, you know, which combination of measures works better. Right. So, so we, we do have that loosely now where different states had different yeah. things, but even there, there wasn't much variation. Whereas again, you know, if you, if you had, so I, again, I just think because we don't know at the outset, like I said, I mean, the hilarious, not hilarious, the sick thing of the government originally telling people, I mean, I, for some of your listeners, I don't know if they said it, but Fauci was on, I think it was 60 Minutes early on. Yeah, very early. Discouraging people from wearing masks yeah. and and like not just saying, you know, oh, well, you say, but like, oh, yeah, because they get dirty and you don't know how to put them on right No, no I wouldn't wear a mask right now. And and so it, it's a flip. And there, you know, it turned out later he was trying to explain, oh, because we want to reserve for the healthcare workers, which is almost even worse. Yeah. But no. th- that he would like and he's basically saying, yeah, we I was lying to the American public because we wanted, you know, there are other people that we thought were more important, which you could say made sense in his calculus. But still, that's kind of creepy. But again, so it's not surprising. So th- that's partly, too, why you don't let the government or it would, it's a bad idea to give them the authority to do it because people, the the critics who say, hey, just follow the signs, they tend to assume that it's just cut and dry what the right thing to do was. And mm-hmm. no, it isn't because it's, like I say, there's more involved than merely knowing how to accurately model the spread of a disease with a certain, you know, r not and blah, blah, blah. And even if that were true, and some of those models were wildly off, to, to know the interaction and know, okay, well, this is how best to implement these responses. I mean, it's like why socialism doesn't work, right? right. It's, it, yeah. Just because you know, oh, here's how to make a car, here's how to grow food, it doesn't follow that, oh, so it's a snap just to plan the economy and know where all the factories should be and things like that. Like, there's a lot that goes on, and that's what market economies do. And so likewise, too, when it comes to something like, oh, slowing the spread, like things, why, why was the mask production and you know so so terrible? And why, why were people out of paper towels for so like Lots of goofy little things like that, that, you know, I think if there had been a lot more freedom involved and especially the, the, I don't know if you guys were aware, but the testing early on, yes, the FDA and I forget the other group that like they were actively, there were private, um, medical groups that were coming up with early tests and they were like literally violating the law because in their good conscience, they said, I cannot hold this. I'm, I'm giving this out to people, stuff like that. Mm -hmm. I knew a guy. Yeah. And I, I knew a guy who had some, masks um that were not n95 they were like the next level down yeah Um, kn95s i think yes exactly the kn95 when there were hospital workers that were coming in like using rags and stuff like dealing with covid cases and and just using rags or whatnot or t-shirts and he was going to hospitals and like offering to give them to him and saying i know a supply and they weren't taking them because that you know would have violated their protocol or oh no we can't use k95 but so right 
Bob, so when I was, and I'm so sorry, Jesse, mm. I don't mean to keep hijacking this question because I do think <laughs> we should get back there. But, um, but as part of just like part of the craziness that happened this year and um, totally related to like that early Fauci kind of backtrack and saying like, oh, well, I was saying this because, you know, we were worried about the um, PPE shortage. And I do think there was a PPE shortage in the hospitals, as you just alluded to with your, mm. um, the story of your friend was it who had the uh, had the mask that he was trying to donate and so i being in the in the place i am with my job like i was literally day what felt like day one i was pulled back from vacation had to go to work and i was there as a liaison like kind of like writing to all our fortune 500 clients saying you know do any of you and any of your clients have ppe that might be suitable for our friends and doctors mm-hmm. because you know their supplies are limited they're supposed to be um, throwing them away after every use normally mm-hmm. um but i think like a huge problem of that was just the way that hospitals kind of like self-regulate is even very like bureaucratic and like archaic and not super i think market-based but um so you know they're only like only supplying certain things that are like keeping certain amounts of certain things. Um, you know, the hospital beds is a regulated thing. The amount of hospitals is a regulated thing. All these, the amount of staff, like every single thing about a hospital is, su- uh, Jesse, you know, like mm-hmm. is super extremely um, regulated. And so because of all that control, it was basically impossible to kind of unleash it and allow it to respond to this unknown crisis in any fast manner at all. I mean, I still think it's catching up. Like it still doesn't even know what it's doing because it's still under all these practices um, that I think have led it very, very far astray. Um, But so, you know, exactly. You were right. Like, so I, I had certain people that were responding and said, you know, I've got a stockpile, like we're there, we're in the construction business. Like we've got a stockpile Mm -hmm, of the KN95s. mm -hmm. Like, do you guys want these? (laughs) And they were basically just like, you know, the contacts I had at the hospital just never got back to him. Like another right. crazy, like, and, and it was really like, I don't know. It was, it was definitely like emotional period where you could tell everybody wanted to help so bad, but they couldn't like, you know, Dow <laughs> chemical was ready to stop manufacturing and switch to ventilators. But again, they couldn't get any kind of approval mm. or any kind of guidance, mm. any kind of assistance, nothing. Um, you know, 3M, I think, w- did manage to finagle their way into, like, some kind of government contract to start, you know, ramping up their um, N95 production. But again, it was, like, unbelievable amounts of red tape that everybody had to go through to try and make the response as good as it possibly could have been. And it was still not very good. If I could tell you one more on that. It's, yeah. I, I remember this detail. So my same friend, and th- by the way, this guy, for what it's worth, is a medical doctor. I went to high school with him and he, you know, went into medicine. And so again, he's got, you know, he had this Chinese distributor and, yeah. ha- you know, he had boxes of, and so on Facebook, he was telling people, hey, I happen to have a bunch of these on hand. If you need them, let me know. I can give you some for free. Yeah. And then if you, you know, both. And Facebook started taking down his posts oh my God. because they thought he was spreading disinformation about coronavirus. And so he had to like disguise it and say, if you need marbles from me. Oh my God. You, you know, and like it was the, the craziest. So, you know, Facebook's not literally the same thing as the government, but I'm just, you know, part of it They're just showing, enough, you know, yeah, yeah, right. I know. But, but just kind of showing that how like the, 
the knee jerk, like, oh, let's clamp down and do everything the, the right way. Like, is like you say, just stifling people who are yep. trying to experiment and help and you know, co- people collectively solving a problem. Yeah, there were clothing companies. Yep. Everybody was trying to adjust, like completely shut down what they were doing and change gears to um, respond and, and help in some way. And again, like similar to the testing, like it was banned basically, like whether it was a hospital like a hospital level thing or like the AMA or just some level of government interference. Um, You know, people wanted to help so bad and they couldn't help. But then what was the solution? Oh, if you want to help, stay home, stay safe. Like, again, like just everybody gets on lockdown and does Zoom parties and, you know, is satisfied with that. You're supposed to be satisfied with that because you're saving the the world. (laughs) Well, I think that one of the problems that has always been with government is that they have like the one size fits all approach. They don't take into account how humans really are and the uniqueness of every human being and how we interact with each other. Because especially like the mask situation, um, you know, when we were mandated to wear masks, I noticed a lot of people not wearing masks correctly Mm -hmm. or wearing the same mask over and over again. Like my mom. And giving themselves strep throat and things mm-hmm. like that. And so mm-hmm. there's all these things that they don't take into account. Like the ventilators being a really good example. Mm-hmm. They, uh, you know, they said, well, to, to keep aerosolizing the virus, we need to go straight to putting people on ventilators. Because we don't want to put them on a CPAP or a BiPAP where they, we might risk the, our healthcare workers' lives by aerosolizing this virus. So we'll risk the lives of patients instead and make mm-hmm. them all go on ventilators. And then lo and behold, um, people started just passing away really, really sadly. Mm-hmm. And uh, then they realized, oh, maybe we need to scale back on that. And, you know, then we, you know, uh, there's a study that me and Maddie were familiar with that was done in China during uh, the SARS where they actually had one hospital that used BiPAPs and CPAPs first and they had actually almost negligent amounts of uh, passing on this virus to healthcare workers. And so they, I think eventually that study came out and people started realizing we don't need to do ventilators as much anymore, but it's just one of these things where it's like, you know, we panic our government panics maybe and thinks like, well, we just need to have this one approach and we'll just do that. We won't think about all of the collateral damage that could be done. Mm-hmm. Right. And I, just to follow up on what you're saying there, and it's appropriate, you know, for the voluntary Vixen show that you're right. Like it, it really is a huge difference, particularly with something like this as to whether people are voluntarily adopting a measure versus whether they're being forced to. So mm-hmm. one issue of course is, there's a lot of resentment, right? As you mm-hmm. know, like a lot of libertarian <laughs> in particular, you know, through this thing, we're like, oh yeah, I'm going to go in there and, you know, wear like, the, you know, there's like the fake masks or whatever that, that look like they are, but they're not. Or just, you know, I'm going to go in there and see what happens, see if they kick me out. And partly because they just resent like, no, why am I being forced to do this sort of thing? And so, you know, if it were voluntary, then, you know, we just know this is the store policy. There's a store down the street that doesn't have a mask, but if you want it, like it would be, I think there would be a lot less of that going on. And then also too, like you say, 
people aren't wearing them properly because they're just being forced to. And then right. if the stores is doing it because, oh, it's the government's mandate as opposed to, no, corporate really wants us to do this to, you know, then maybe they would have proper training, like the employees at the door to make sure if you come in, let me, you know, you really got to have it up. Whereas now, the, the, you know, it's just, no, that's the rule because the law says it this way. So that's why it's not really enforced that well. And then the other, and I think even too, I don't know this, I'm, you know, I haven't researched the literature well enough, but I, I suspect that's partly what's going on. Like, you know how there's, a lot of the studies seem to show that the, you know, when people say, oh, look at these, this study showed masks don't help. A lot of times it's looking at mask mandates, mm -hmm. you know, and so they're like, that's not surprising at all that if you just say put on mask and the people aren't, you know, they're not good. They're just face coverings and things like that. They're loose fitting and the, their nose is sticking up. Yeah, no kidding. That's not going to do anything. But then if versus if it were voluntary and people were trained properly and used better masks, would that contain it? You know, that would be something else entirely. And mm -hmm. so you, you can see like, in other words, it could be true that the proper use of the correct masks would severely slow the spread and putting in the mandate that just says put a thing on your face when you walk into the store right. doesn't do anything. Those are, it's possible. Those are both true. Yes. Yeah, exactly. And, and the mandates are like, again, the reason they fail <laughs> and, and don't take uh, any sort of human, human tendencies into play, but it's like, you know, the mandate is a, again, another, uh, like a one size fits all. It's a bandaid for a lot of things. And so people aren't going to change anything else perhaps about what they're doing in their daily lives, whether it's like diet, exercise, getting enough sunshine, getting good sleep, not drinking because alcohol is an immunosuppressant. Um, you know, but it's become almost like the religious uh, talisman to some mm -hmm. people that, um, you know, it it's going to solve all your problems. And so I think like a lot of um, it, it kind of has backfired, you know, in in on both sides, like the businesses who are enforcing the government's mandate by, you know, asking people to do so like they're not benefiting um, other than they're not getting shut down by the big bad mm -hmm. government. You know, the guys with guns aren't coming and shutting their place down or turning off their electricity or whatever mm -hmm. crazy things we we saw this year that we never ever thought we'd kind of see before in this country. But um and then <laughs> it doesn't really work for people like you said in your family, you guys might have been taking it more seriously and and um you know, actually and and anybody really with like an actual immunocompromised person or elderly, I like, you know, a lot of people were taking care of their elderly parents and and the smart ones, anybody who was able to, you know, get their parents out of out of homes. Um, right. You know, it, it's really sad what's happened. Um, even the ones that didn't, you know, pass away this past year, the fact that they've lost a year of life in certain ways, like in seeing their family, their loved ones, um, you know, having f forced um, cotton swabs up there, like basically touching their brain twice a week is the, I've heard, you know, very sad stories of um, dementia facilities near me. It's like, just, you know, that wasn't good. Mm -hmm. So again, you know, everybody was treated like an obese octogenarian as opposed to an individual. <laughs> um, and, you know, I didn't appreciate that. That's for sure. But um, it didn't ultimately do anything to benefit, um, you know, actual very high risk people. Yeah. Right. And then obviously another example just being, you know, like Governor Cuomo sending the right the, the positive patient to the nursing home. So even there, too, like it's, you know, it really wasn't just, oh, follow the signs or whatever. They, still, there were certain things of 
political correctness or whatever you want to call that non-discrimination or something that trumped what you know clearly was a public health issue and so you're right like it's it, it's it's not like oh we took away civil liberties but at least you know the the death toll was low like no because they did it selectively the death toll was way higher than it needed to be because again they would override their own uh you know prerogatives or their own their own rules in certain cases because there were other things that trumped it uh just like too that all the the public messaging about everything went out the window you know, when, when the, the Black Lives Matter marches started, you know, right. and all oh, of a yeah. sudden, oh, well, racism is a public health issue too. So yeah, you, <laughs> right. you can see why most people have started realizing this really, you know, I, this is not just the experts telling us objectively what, you know, what the epidemiology models tell us. Right. Yeah. And I think um, related to Jesse's question that I still think we should get back to, but I think like this year... And I don't know, maybe you can or can't speak to any of them, but I, I know I remember hearing about um, seemingly um, seemingly malicious or nefarious incentives to like drive up um, numbers. And, you know, what I mean by that is, you know, it from what I heard and read, it looked and so- seemed like, um, you know, a COVID-19 death would result in the hospital getting more money or more insurance money or disaster money, relief money, whatever. Um, you know, uh, it cost it, it, or they were given a certain amount of money to put patients on those ventilators that we later discovered were actually mm-hmm. just like killing people. So, yep. you know, I think a lot of um, perverse at, at the very, <laughs> at the very best, maybe some perverse incentives seem to have um, taken this into hyperdrive. But I think that's again, another, another thing that um you know, economists in particular are able to kind of keep track of better than other people, other, um, other fields, like, especially like, you know, the public health people didn't seem to take any of that into account and what that might do, what, and, um, how that might warp, um, the data and just, uh, the direction everybody was moving in. Yeah, exactly. That's a, that's a great, um, point about that. And it's, you're you're right, and it just underscores again why you don't want the government in charge of healthcare. Yeah, you know, because <laughs> there could be political reasons, you know, for doing things, and it's just it. The more de- it's not that oh, people in the private sector are noble and virtuous, but that if it's it's decentralized at least, yeah. And so there can't you know it can't just if if whereas with the government, like if a nefarious group does get in charge and do things, then yeah, they can just, they can filter through the whole system. Whereas if it's broken up, then, oh, if there's some bad things over here, well, then people can go to the other power centers. Mm-hmm. And um, more, more opportunities for accountability if it's spread exactly. out in such a way. Yeah. You know, once it becomes such a conglomerate um, behemoth, you know, why, there's kind of nobody that's going to answer your questions. There's nobody that's going to really help you. Um, you mean nothing as the individual and, you know, it was all for the greater good. It was all for public health, like just a kind of a very, like much of a horror story. Um, and seemed like a dystopian novel we were in on this past year and kind of still are. But, um, I think, you know, based on to circle back to Jesse's very astute question, like based on what we kind of saw last year, do you have any, um, insight as to you know i know you mentioned earlier like obviously this is a very unsustainable system we have but you know do we have any kind of uh white pill or silver lining or anything that um we learned or saw this year in terms of 
the economics of um of healthcare and maybe we will kind of see more freedom or any kind of um peeling back or rollbacks or anything um oh, i well the only real white pill that i see is that the system is so strained strained so thin and then just for other reasons too people are just so upset with each other that uh I think secession is is a real possibility that with, you know, various states breaking off. And then if that were to happen, then clearly, you know, I I think that would be the, the thing that would really change things because the people in in those states would be, you know, they could have their own system, be, be free of the federal oversight and do something much more localized. And then their example would be, you know, show, Mm -hmm. Oh, look at you, you know, you, you don't need to do such and such. And, yeah. People aren't dying in the streets. And so then even the people that remain behind, you know, it would be harder for the public, the official narrative to, to be upheld there. Um, so things like I, I don't I, I don't know so much about medicine, but I think some of the silver lining of the clouds this last year were I think a lot of parents, you know, who had their kids staying home realized like either because they they tried homeschooling because they had to and they realized, oh, this actually isn't as impossible yeah. as I thought it was. Or because they saw with the Zoom lectures, like, wait a minute, this is what they've been teaching you? Are you yeah. kidding me? Yeah. You know, that kind of stuff. Yeah. Um, and just the, the ridiculousness of like how crazy, like going back is you know, is still up in the air and things like that, depending on which jurisdiction you're in. So I, since I'm a, a very big critic of the you know official government school system, I, I think that was the one decent thing yeah. about this, that that I think sort of showed people what it really what it was. And I guess more generally along those lines that people realizing, yeah, they need to take their, you know, take their health into their own hands and and realize that the system is not going to save you. And so even though it's a harsh wake up call, perhaps that it's, you know, the more people realize that, the better. Yeah, I think that makes us all um, healthier individuals as well as uh, more successful which is, you know, what they don't want necessarily, but, um, you know, who are we to give them exactly what they want? <laughs> right. <laughs> exactly. Yeah. Um, I don't know. I, we're hit, we're hitting about an hour, I'd say now. Um, it is technically a school night. Um, Jesse, do you have any final questions or anything like we should have hit on that we didn't? No, I mean, I was just thinking like as far as like where how COVID is is going to affect healthcare. I just my I'm wondering how it's going to affect. You know, we're going to have vaccines every year. It sounds like kind of like a flu type mm-hmm. situation. Um, and then I'm also just wondering like how deaths are going to be counted because the way that we counted COVID deaths is different than how we would normally categorize deaths. So I'm just curious how that will look in the next few years. And how if hospitals are going to be reimbursed differently for different diagnoses for death. Um, and yeah, that's just, I know that there were some states that refused to prescribe certain medication for, mm-hmm. um, for patients. Like they wouldn't, they wouldn't give high, like your, your aunt, she couldn't yeah. have the hydroxychloroquine. Those are all things that I just kind of am curious, like how healthcare is going to, and I don't know if we can really answer those questions right now. Like, you know, how are we going to look at this stuff in the future? And what will be the next, you know, COVID, basically? Yeah, so I mean, just a few reactions to, from me on that one. Um, 
that yeah, I'm very pessimistic about that stuff, which is why I think <laughs> the only way this gets fixed is if states break out. I, I can't see another way that you know I don't think it's going to be reformed from within kind of deal. But yeah, like with the with the vac- the vaccine passports and stuff like that. I mean, to me, it's so obvious that being able to track people is something that government or the, you know, people behind the politicians, whatever, whatever terminology you want to use have have always wanted. They couldn't have done that on its own because people would have said, well, you kidding me? You're not just going to track me around. That's great. Whereas this now, you know, is the, is the excuse to, to get into, into that. And so again, regardless of whether people, you know, support the idea of of businesses asking people to show their, you know, because, Ten years ago, you, if you want to enroll your kid in a school, they would say, "Well, has he gotten his shots?" And most people wouldn't have, you know, shrunk back in horror at the invasion of civil liberties. You know what I mean? So yeah. the idea mm-hmm. of a, of an institution asking for your vaccine status before you can come in, you know, per se, that's not insane. But in the current environment and how it's being pushed down, that yeah, I don't trust the motives of the people who want that. Right. And you know, to me, that's just yeah, they're just going to roll it into oh, all your medical right. It'll be real easy, all one stop. You know, this way your medical records will all be there, and and just to be able to convenient, to try, right? Right. And as they're also, as I'm sure you know, like the, trying to phase out actual cash and make everything digital. Yeah. So it's you know. The, it gets to a you know how long down the road we're talking about, but you know there is a, a dystopian future in which you know someone who's a dissident where they just turn off your thing and then you just you can't participate in in the economy. Right. You know your money you don't have any access to. You can't spend money. People don't let you in because they don't know your health background, things like that. So presumably that's a, you know people don't want that future. We got to think of that now and and and, and resist some of these these uh, efforts. Um, and and you're and you're right. Like I say, because that's what I think they want. Then it's not just going to be okay. Well, phew, we got COVID nineteen under control, yeah. and now let's go back to normal. <laughs> yeah, like yeah. they're not. That's why they're not going to do that. No way. And and just like too with I think they'll now it's really established that oh, like we can't allow misinformation or disinformation. Yeah. 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 So just all the online th- and and I think that's partly too the rationale like. Why were they so adamant about just getting people to be in their houses? And I think it's because now, if everyone's just in their house getting their information through the computer, if it's they can control what you can see, then that's, you know what I mean? Whereas if it's large groups and people are talking in person, you know, they can't control that as well. So, again, I mean, these are, so, you know, like I said, we we took COVID-19 very, I know some people are like, oh, it was all a hoax or whatever, and this is just a big con. That's not me. Like I think it was a real thing, but just like nine eleven really happened. Yeah. And then the neocons used that to push the war, you know, invading Iraq, which they wanted to do anyway for years. Yep. To me, that's kind of what happened here. That this was a real thing. Really, people did die. Right. But then sinister people took it and did things with it that they they wanted to do anyway. Right. Right. Yeah. Actually, b- quick point back to your previous statement about um and rightfully making it um making it known that it's a bipartisan issue. You know, mm-hmm. uh, a lot, like this severe lockdown plan was put into place under Bush Jr.'s, or, you know, what's his name? The younger Bush's um, administration. I think he empowered the CDC in a way that hadn't previously been done before. And, you know, this was kind of in the in the playbooks from his time, but it was basically his idea to get people talking about um is this the dark pandemic winter? um is that what you're talking about um the dark actually winter? that's old that's the, that might even be older 
Um, I'd have to look back at that, but I, but I know, um, like that was a older sort of playbook thing that they did, but, um, yeah. So it, it again, back, it's not a uh, Republican Democrat issue. It's a, it's a government issue. It's right. It's funny. There was a lot of bad stuff, the George W. Bush administration, like too, just even on things like climate change and a big, like the renewable fuel stand, there was a lot of, you know, ethanol mandates and things that were, you know, that wasn't crazy socialist stuff from Barack Obama, that Marxist. Yeah. It was no George W. Bush, the to- Texas oil man pushed he through a bunch of that stuff. He was awful. And, um, yeah. 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 I mean, just like I, I wasn't actually, I was fairly young for Bush. Um, and so like, you know, Obama was elected president my freshman year of college, if that kind of ages me for that purpose. But, you know, so I wasn't aware of anything going on during the Bush years. Honestly, I, I was in sixth grade when nine eleven happened and I was just yeah, a kid. Yeah. Dealing, dealing with kid things. Um, so I, definitely wasn't aware of how bad um, Bush was until way later. Um, And even like being kind of politically aware and involved and trying to read, I was still very, you know, blue pilled uh, on the Republican conservative leaning side during Obama. And so I only knew certain things that he wasn't good at. And, you know, actually he wasn't the, I don't know, like the whole um, neocon argument that he was a weak president and you know Mm. um and maybe in some ways like he was but like their point was that he wasn't doing enough overseas and it's like then when i kind of had the red pill and became a libertarian and more of an anarchist and anti-war i was like oh my god he was (laughs) like a war criminal and he was killing brown brown people all over the world and you know, we had no idea just because, again, the media is all slanted. Um, mm-hmm. But, you know, both sides, you know, they both have their agendas. Um, and so it's really up to people to look for look to, look for alternative information, um, alternative viewpoints. And, you know, people that might not align with uh, either political party might be a good place to start. You know, I think we've got a little bit... Um, a little bit more objectivity when we don't have a dog in the fight. Mm-hmm. Yeah, my quick story on that, just to you know, uh, appreciate your, you know, how you're saying, oh, I was naive. In the 2000 election, so it was, you know, George W. Bush versus Al Gore, <laughs> and it was it was close, it was up in the air, yeah. and I went to his bed that night, and I was so worried, that, oh no, if Al Gore wins, he's going to wreck the economy. <laughs> then, oh, man. <laughs> so It's almost karma, in a way, like a sick kind of karma. <laughs> But uh, I think I think we've learned our lesson, you know, and our uh, it it means our work's cut out for us that um you know we're here to try to educate people that are willing to open their minds to it. Um, you know, we can't change everybody's mind, but um, you know, we're obviously interested in changing changing people's minds. Again, anybody who kind of is uh, open and looking for it. But um, so speaking of changing minds, Bob, where can everybody listening find you if they're not already like aware of Bob Murphy and all the work you do. Well, sure. So I guess I would just point to bobmurphyshow.com. So that's the website for my podcast, but it's got links to all the other stuff I'm doing too. So bobmurphyshow.com. All right. Yep. That's super, super simple. Um, and I like that your, your RPM consulting website is just like free advice. It's like, you know, (laughs) that's what it's called. Free advice by Bob Murphy. And, um, it's, 
definitely priceless. Um, Jesse, do you want to tell anybody where they can find us? Yeah, um, we're most active on Instagram, so you can always just follow us there at the Voluntary Vixens podcast um, on there. And then we also are on Facebook still at the Voluntary Vixens podcast. And um, we have a Twitter that I go through little waves of being active and not active, um, and that's at Vixens Voluntary. And um, if you'd like to donate to us, we also have a Patreon at Vixens underscore voluntary. I think that's it. That sounds like sounds like it. All right. Well, Bob, thanks again. We really appreciate your time. Um, thanks for letting us pick your brain and kind of, you know, just showing up with a, a plethora of things we could pull out of the hat. But, um, you know, you being ready and willing to do so. So thanks again. <laughs> Well, thanks for having me. I'm glad you're uh, getting this information out to your listeners. Yes, absolutely. Thank you. What little we can do. <laughs> um, <laughs> listeners, you guys, um, you mean so much to us. Keep in touch, um, you know, and in your lives, please, uh, until next time, keep it sane, keep it peaceful, and keep it voluntary. Mm-hmm.